You're listening to the Hearing the Voice lecture series. The following lecture was recorded on the 7th of May 2015 and features Professor Patricia Waugh on Voices Becoming Characters, Insights from the Experimental Novel. If you'd like to find out more about our research into voice hearing, you can visit our website, hearingthevoice.org, or tweet us at hearingvoice. Okay, so this talk, um, it's really in three parts. The first part is I'm going to talk about building character in fiction and what we can learn from it about voices in the context of hearing the voice. Then I'm going to um, then reflect on what we mean by experiment in fiction, but also experiment in science. Um, and then I'm going to challenge some of the ways in which um, literary critics have tended to think about um, artistic periods and particularly thinking about the novel as realism being sort of boring um, and about a reflection of the world, modernism being highly experimental and postmodernism being even more experimental. And what I want to suggest is if we expand the concept of experimental, we can see all kinds of fiction as experimental um, in a way that's relevant to this project. Um, okay, so um, I've, I've sort of written this talk for a general audience, although I see that most of my audience, <laughs> well, probably half of my audience, are from the project. <laughs> so just let your eyes glaze over when we get to the bits <laughs> that you know all about. Um, okay, well, here goes. Um, and I've, I've put these things on a handout because I thought we might want to look at one or two of these passages in a bit more detail. Um, Okay, for the South African novelist Nadine Gordimer, a fictional character emerges, she says, as a coherence in the babble of the conscious and unconscious, a gathering from a diaspora. For another contemporary, David Mitchell, another contemporary novelist, writing a novel is a kind of controlled personality disorder. To make it work, you have to concentrate on the voices in your head and get them talking to each other. So can thinking about the relation between voice and character in the novel offer insights into the phenomenon of hearing voices, medically termed auditory verbal hallucinations, and I'm going to, as we all do, put that term in, inverse, in, in commas, um, or hearing voice in the absence of external auditory stimulation. Can novels be experimental, then, in both an artistic and a scientific sense? Can, the, can we find things out through them, in other words? Is there a relation between a narratologically understood voice in the novel and the voices of the voice hearer in the world? Novels strangely immerse us in story worlds and in characters as if they were real worlds and people, but remind us too of their status as crafted or purely intentional objects. Even the supposedly early but ultra-realist Robinson Crusoe, the first English novel, is strangely doubled. The dissenting, shipwrecked and self-sabotaged Crusoe is the ultimate survivor, but reconstructs himself through the creation, the making of his own imaginary and peopled kingdom, which is also a kind of conceit for Defoe's own artistry as a novelist, his own act of imaginary creation. So there's this curious doubling effect in novels that want us to make us feel that we've entered a real world but at the same time are holding up, in many ways, the act that's brought them into being as fictional creations. 
Crusoe seems to live and has had numerous lives in various sequels ever since. But as a character, he's part of a complex written narrative structure and novel defined in contradistinction to other kinds of narrative, mostly by the distinctive and singular nature of the novel's fictionality. But we feel we know the places of fiction, Dickens' London, Joyce's Dublin, George Eliot's Middlemarch, and feel intimate with their denizens, Esther Greenwood, Leopold Bloom, Dorothea Brooke. Paradoxically, part of the feeling of knowing a person that fiction produces is premised on the peculiar ontological status of the fictional world, one that is primarily determined by its purely intentional or verbal condition. Novelistic worlds and their inhabitants are characteristically and tantalisingly gappy or indeterminate because fiction creates what it's describing as it describes it. Though the number of children born to Dorothea Brooke, for example, in Middlemarch is definitively unknowable because we never get that far by the end of the novel, no doubt many readers have continued to build her character in their minds by imagining inexistent details of her future life with Wilt Ladislaw. The Geneva School phenomenologist George Poulet has even argued that reading fiction is a kind of experience of thought insertion, where the reader's mind is possessed or taken over by the thoughts of another. Novelists work with voices through a creative, voluntary mode of dissociation that we think of as a mode of absorption. A novelist like Jonathan Franzen, for example, writes in a bare room with earphones and an eye mask so that he's completely inside his own head. Um, as in hypnotism, which is another mode of dissociation, the mind's images, auditory and visual, become more vivid, so that what is heard or pictured seems no longer self-constructed or self-induced, and that gives the feeling that it's simply there. When we read, the novelist cues the reader to create an imaginary world that is immersive because it feels more like perception or more like memory than the flimsiness of the imagination. It's what Henry James calls the solidity of specification, Again, because it feels as if, not that we've had to construct it ourselves as we do when we're imagining, but that it's simply there. Phenomenology given, pre-existent, like memory or perception, and not artificially called up and made out of the airy nothings or fancies of the imagination. So self-consciously metafictional or not, novels that refer to themselves as novels, all novels to some extent, and to borrow a term from Heidegger, world worlds. So writers work with and intuit the implicit agency of their inner voices, their ready attunement to a world of interlocutors, to create imaginary characters whose intentionalities entangle with those of real readers. In my view, Lawrence Stern and Tristan Shandy is closer to what happens than Georges Poulet, of the, uh, the phenomenologist of the Geneva School. Tristan Shandy says... Uh, St uh, Lawrence Stern says through Trisham Shandy addressing his reader, we have the matter amicably shared. In other words, our minds aren't being possessed, but we're helping to create these characters. In the private space of reading and writing, characters appear exhilaratingly uncolonised, available for our own personal extrapolation, though nudged by a disembodied or shadowy curator, mostly a kind of stylistically felt presence than an intrusive and directive voice. And this for which the term implied author was invented, that cues us through verbal patterning, tropic language, repetition, rhythm, nuances of style, 
towards explication and interpretation. But our minds, already honed for reading those of others through inference, implication and observation, participate, mostly unselfconsciously, in this building of voices into characters. And in it, we rehearse the very skills of transference that we exercise in our real lives through the dynamic process of intersubjectivity that simply builds our sense of our own and other selves. But there are differences. To live life as in the telos of fiction, securing the revelation of a final significance, would be paranoid indeed. So too, reading might be thought of as a variety of thought insertion or hearing another's voice dispossessing me of my own so that my flow of inner speech is curiously on loan to another's. But we are far more free in fiction than in life to colonise those voices that constitute character and to make them feel part of a sense of mindless. And it's why Flaubert, for example, forbade illustration in his novels. He, wants us, he knows that he's kind of cueing us to build a character in our own minds through our own um, uh, mental processes. Early novelists worried about the morality of passing off the invented as real in this way, just as their critics accused them of trying to derange healthy minds. But after varieties of pr pretense of found documents, for example, Robinson Crusoe's purported to be the found journal um, of its protagonist. By the mid-18th century, novelists recognised that in, in inventing the novel, they'd invented, too, something perhaps even more radically new. The discovery of fictionality as an epistemological tool, or watch C.H. Weinger, the post-Kantian philosopher in the early 20th century, would refer to as that mode of the as-if, of fiction as an interest, as an instrument for finding things out with its own technical equipment and tools. Thinking of the novel in this way, we might argue that artistic experiment might be seen to be entangled with, the, with a, a more scientific notion of experiment. So that Zola's famous call in his essay of 1880, The Experimental Novel, for a new anti-vitalist novel that would be a vehicle for scientific examination and understanding, I would argue was already underway in England circa 1719 with the publication of Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, the first novel, the first experimental novel. Any argument for a distinctive contribution of the novel to understanding the phenomenon of hearing the voice has to begin here. I see its major contribution following from these premises, voice and fictionality, as I've talked about, as a contribution to knowledge, a capacity to offer an understanding of the way the mind works that might liberate other meanings to hearing the voice than simply those of madness, but might also um, contribute to the phenomenological discrimination of different kinds of and expressions of voice. Fiction also offers an historical archive um, and a provision, therefore, of an intellectual genealogy that allows amplification of concepts that have recently returned um, to the forefront of psychiatry, such as the concept of dissociation that has been used to explain one, one potential mechanism of AVHs. But fiction also offers a political contribution in recognising some damaging effects of our tendency to fetishise a particular idea of the self that has its origins in the modern world, in liberalism, in liberal philosophy, um, 
as autonomous, self-contained, and unity, uh, unified, etc. And that this idea of the self is our only means to safeguard human freedom. Fiction, therefore, I'm suggesting, and I'll look at all these uh, in a moment, offers the possibility of accessing a more radical mode of the empathetic that might break through varieties of often hidden normative thinking about unusual states of mind that are referred to as mental illness. If we look at the history of the novel from Crusoe on, it's interesting that every moment of experimental breakthrough or development has not only involved new kinds of voice in the more narrowly narratological sense, free and direct discourse developing the capacity to think about theory of mind, for example, interior monologue helping us to think about inner speech, covert narration, etc., etc. These are all modes of voice that narratologists uh, work with. But alongside that, interestingly, each narrative breakthrough in thinking about voice has also run alongside thematic depictions and mediations of varieties of hearing the voice that have challenged historically normative thinking about what it means to be a self. Just a random sample is suggestive. From Robinson Crusoe, the first English novel, to those of the Brontes, think about uh, the voices um, heard in uh, Wuthering Heights, uh, in Jane Eyre, Dickens, George Eliot, to late Victorian novels that explore the phenomenon of the double, from James Hogg to Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Conrad's Heart of Darkness with its Marlowe and Courts, to high modernist texts such as Mrs. Dalloway, which was in part, in part inspired by Dostoevsky's The Double, or Nabokov's Pale Fire, to the late modernism of Beckett's trilogy, the new post-war comic novel even, uh, a novel like Lucky Jim, which ends with Jim speaks in tongues in its comic and catastrophic crescendo as he kind of collapses um, into... In, in, into um, uh, mimicry, uh, involuntary mimicry of a whole range of voices uh, when he's supposed to be delivering a, his, his big public lecture that's going to gain him his post at the university. The first fully-fledged metafiction was probably Muriel Sparks' The Comforters, which investigates relations between the teleological structure of the novel, Catholic belief, and the capacity of the novel to keep open spiritual alternatives to the narrowly empirical or biomedical understanding of hearing voices, and then Rushdie's Midnight's Children in 1981, which was awarded the Booker of Bookers for its linguistic and technical rejuvenation of the novel in English, depicting the new international writer as a kind of demented medium. Through its narrator Salim, his mind a kind of radio transmitter, trying to reconcile Nehru's secular globalism and Gandhi's spiritual localism, and picking up the voices of the afflicted, the oppressed, the displaced, and the suffering from around the globe. As his body cracks and splits, his mind, we're told, becomes a polyglot frenzy of voices. So thinking about the novel as experimental in this way focuses as much on form as on history and uses their combined force to challenge assumptions that the experience of hearing voices, as in AVHs, is inevitably an expression of a psychotic mental state, predominantly a first-rank symptom of schizophrenia, a view that's still operative at the level of popular as well as medical assumptions. Hearing novels in these novels, hearing voices in these novels is part of their fascination with their own fictionality, of an investigation of socio-cognitive processes 
as they create and develop devices that seem to embed and anchor selves in a world, those internal processes that in life are mostly a taken-for-granted background, constantly monitoring mood and feeling, but surface to become explicit rather than tacit, the kind of inner speech that flows through our minds continuously at moments of bodily discomfort, emotional disease, as when the world challenges shocks or throws up errors in our predictions of it. So too, voices in, AVA, in AVHs appear in relation to stress, shock, bewildering changes, commonly during bereavement or loss, often accompanying sudden spiritual insight or conversion or voluntary dissociated states such as meditation. They might follow traumatic events where disruptive processes of memory, often mediated by dissociative states or disavowed emotions, return to haunt the individual in displaced modes, sometimes created through a kind of intuitive abductive reasoning. The multiple states of multiple personality disorder, or what's now termed dissociative identity disorder, become the ghosts and varieties of revenant in, in novels such as Toni Morrison's Beloved or Hilary Mantel's Beyond Black. A rich history of the modes and mechanisms of dissociation is kept alive in literary texts. Dissociation is now recognised as um, a powerful mediator of the development of voices after trauma, but medical understanding of what's meant by dissociation is still in its infancy. But if we look at the history of, of fiction, um, there's a rich history available. T.S. Eliot, a key modernist, formulated his concept of dissociation of sensibility um, from Pierre Janet's uh, late 19th century work on dissociation. And novels have explored its multiple manifestation as absorption, trance, hypnosis, numbing, disavowal, aftershock, and fugue. The medical vocabulary hasn't begun to get its head around these kinds of phenomenological distinctions and what they mean. Um, just as the novel discovers fictionality, so in developing voice, it begins to understand voices. The novelist Miguel Unamuno in 1913 observed that to think is to talk with oneself. Each of us talks to himself because we've had to talk with one another. Thought is interior language and internal language originates in external language. Default cognition enables a tacit acceptance that I'm, I am always me and yet not me. But if the world breaks or fails to scaffold my capacity to exist thus, so I turn my attention inwards. Beckett, of course, is the master of this. Those normally anchoring processes of interiority may begin to seem strange. My thoughts may appear as a pale echo of my own voice, but I may seem unlocatable, oddly outside. Whose then is the voice I hear? Is it me or mine? Something not me, but that I own. If I listen too hard and for too long, I risk losing ownership, let alone identity with my voice, my voices. I may feel more like a ventriloquist dummy than a self. Or I may retain ownership but lose agency, hearing my voice but disconnect it from me, expressing alien content that seems not my own. A somewhat florid illustration of how this normal process might become suddenly strange and threatening is given in one of the best-known experiments in fiction that is also about an actual experiment on the mind. Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde opens with a chapter, The Story of the Door, that begins the process of foregrounding the crossing of thresholds. 
Dr. Jekyll, experimenting on himself, takes the white powder that defiantly liberates his dark interior. But the face he sees in the mirror and recognises that this too was part of myself is seen only through the lens of a puritanical culture for whom the body is a thing, a source of evil desire that dooms him to shipwreck, just like Robinson Crusoe, and the fear that not only, he says, is man, that man is not truly one, but in the future, man will be ultimately known for a mere polity of multifarious, incongruous and independent denizens. As Jekyll never becomes acquainted with or emotionally accepts Hyde as part of himself, so he's overpowered by him. Hyde remains an external voice because he remains a projection of Jekyll's internalised terror concerning his own human desires. Though we believe in Jekyll, Hyde never becomes more than a voice, never becomes quite a character. This insight might be thought of also as the starting point for experimental avatar therapy developed by the psychiatrist Julian Zleff and dialogue therapies such as those developed by Marius Rom and also members of um, this uh, research group um, that are being explored as part of the project. They proceed on principles akin to the building of voices into characters that we experience and is in the novel and as experienced by the novelist. What's key as a finding is that suppressing voices is ineffective. Listening to them and building them into characters through relationship, engagement, the opening up of dialogue is a means to acknowledge their source and role in the life and the coping strategies of the self. So I want now to return to the question of what is understood by the term experimental novel before I go on to look at some of these um, ideas about voice and character through specific fictions. I'll begin with one of the, the foremost current scourges of the experimental novel. That's the prominent novel critic and literary editor James Wood. For Wood, the novel is character. The novel does interiority. A character is a self before it is a voice. Because the novel, he says, is the last protector and defence of what we mean by the liberal self as a kind of post-Aristotelian intentionality, a combination of agency and ethos, ethos in the original Greek sense meaning kind of shared um, beliefs and values. Character grounded in an interiority that conjoins what William James called the empirical self, that processes and responds to the demands of the social world with what he calls the subliminal self that yearns for spiritual or transcendent, transcendental being. And there's a wonderful illustration of this idea of William James in his brother's novel, uh, A Portrait of the Lady, where um, Isabel Archer and Madame Merle confront each other. Madame Merle insisting that the self is simply strategically geared for survival and is entirely expressed and constituted through clothes and possessions, a kind of version of possessive individualism, and its idealist heroine Isabel insisting that the self is an ineffable and radically inexpressible spiritual essence. So for Wood, character is somehow a blend of these, and in the great literary novel presents a view of the self as unified, integral, autonomous and self-contained. From Don Quixote's romance-driven and deluded quest for moral beauty in his mad cry as he dons his deluded identity of medieval chivalric knight but announces, I know who I am, 
and never relinquishes that view. Even to Dickens' indirect and inferential laying bare of the character of Pip in Great Expectations, in his self-revealing summation of Magwitch, his secret benefactor, who he says, from head to foot, there was convict in the very grain of the man. It doesn't tell us much about Magwitch, but it tells us a huge amount about Pip that he evaluates Magwitch in that way. It's a kind of insight into his mind without going into his mind. Characters reveal themselves. They are their own consistent, if educable, originals, valuable as the ultimate expression of what Wood sees as a liberal view of persons. In the experimental novel, however, according to Wood, this view of the self is undermined. So it's part of what he sees as this attack on the self. And this has been a liberal theme, really, since Lionel Trilling, before even Freud, actually, um, might be fitted into that trajectory. Wood says, The most impressive novelistic minds of our age do not think that language and the representation of consciousness are the novelists' quarries anymore. It's an attack on postmodernism and uh, postmodern experiment. Zadie Smith, in an essay in 2009, agrees with Wood that experimentalism in fiction is now a fascinating failure. It's, it's marginal. And adds the, but she adds the caveat that in this version of our literary history, the last man standing is the Balzac-Flaubert model. That's what Wood sees as the epitome of um, character as a liberal self. She ends, <coughs> is this really the closest model we have to our condition? Or simply the bedtime story? That comforts us most. In my view, the major, in major experimental insight of the novel, beyond its discovery of fictionality as an epistemological tool, constitutes a, a, a total challenge to Wood's um, almost entirely moral view of the uses of fiction and his idea, his liberal idea of character. If we accept what I'm going to argue is much more fundamental to the experiment of the novel, then the novel is fundamentally experiment from it, experimental from its beginning and not simply in its later avant-garde modes. So let's look at Robinson Crusoe, the first fictional character in the English novel. Crusoe is still the iconic emblem of the survivor, but he's presented as saved from the traumatic effects of isolation, shipwreck and a castaway condition by his ability to listen to his own thoughts, to allow his inner voices to speak to each other, David Mitchell's phrase, and in the comfort he takes in their externalisation as he talks to God and writes in his journal. He appears indeed to be building himself as a character. He even insists that his life, 20 years in solitude, was better than sociable. For when I began to regret the want of conversation, I would ask myself whether, conversing with my own thoughts, and as I hope I may say with even God himself, was not better than the utmost enjoyment of humane society in the world. <laughs> it doesn't say much for his friends. Um, well, of course, Defoe, his maker, was himself a dissenter who led a kind of precarious existence. I won't go into that. Um, and was seen... And the dissenters, in their mode of speaking with God, were seen as enthusiasts, always on the edge of being perceived as, as mad. Um, the idea of speaking with God for the Church of England, um, for the Anglican Church, um, and indeed the Catholic Church, um, was the idea of an intellectual or unvoiced presence that one simply um, intuits. <coughs> 
Crusoe makes his god into an intimate, a character in his own right, much like Socrates' daemon, supportive but not intrusively directive, although he still hears the voice voicelessly. Um, he hears the voice of God by randomly opening pages of his Bible and then responding to what he reads there. And he says, I had a great deal of comfort within. Interestingly, I think um, one of the things that um, Crusoe is trying to reconcile throughout the novel is a scientific view of the world um, with his religious um, understanding of his, his, his placing method against miracle throughout the text. Um, he writes his journal as debtor and creditor. Um, and everything reveals this kind of internal conflict that underlies his, his way in which he's trying to understand how to reconcile the empirical and the spiritual self, this thing that um, goes back to that Henry James is still presenting in The Portrait of a Lady. Um, and what Defoe does is he finds a language that somehow, as um, Crusoe puts up fences um, to create a sanctuary for himself, he's also, in a sense, putting up mental fences as well, finding ways to um, think about what's inner and what's outer. And yet this is by no stretch of the imagination psychological realism. Listening in and writing his journal, we could say that Crusoe discovers for himself the benefits of narrative or dialogue therapy. His moment of greatest discomposure, however, also involves a voice. But this time, it's the intrusion of a voice from outside, not the voice of God. He's startled out of sleep by the voice of a parrot that has listened to his cries of despair and now mimics back his master's voice, calling his name, Poor Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe responds with terror. It's as if his inner voices of despair that are comforted by the voice of God, the voice of reason admonishing him for his despair, has broken free to exert a kind of disembodied power, tormenting him beyond the possibility of his conscious control. Many years later, Joyce's bloom walking to the funeral of Paddy Dignam, mind-wandering and reflecting that every Friday buries a Thursday, finds the parrot's voice breaking into his thoughts too, as a ditty that starts to run through his mind. Oh, poor Robinson Crusoe, how could you possibly do so? And on it goes. Well, what do we learn about voice here? That from the very beginning, even in Defoe, the novel uses voice or voices dialogically, contradictorily and polyphonously to create a sense of character as fragile and vulnerable, moment by moment responding to answering, dialoguing inwardly with the calls of the world and the cries of inner promptings. This is not Wood's picture of character as the classic liberal self. No doubt Wood is not a great admirer of Bakhti, who, like Virginia Woolf, developed his theory of the novel um, in Dostoevsky's Poetics, um, from his reading of Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky and Wolf were both, of course, voice hearers. Um, Wolf developed her ideas for Mrs. Dalloway after reading Dostoevsky's The Double and thinking about the way in which he um, represented in a speech. Um, but Bakhtin, reading Dostoevsky, invented a term called double voicing. Um, the uniqueness of voice in the novel, Bakhtin argues, is that it always, this is a quote from Dostoevsky's Poetics, uses another voice by inserting a new semantic intentionality into a discourse 
which retains an intention of its own. He's saying then that one voice is always inhabited by the ghostly trace of another. Think of Wolf's Mrs. Ramsay, for those of you who've read To the Lighthouse. It's a novel of mourning where she was really trying to lay to rest the ghost of her parents. And she said after she'd written it, she no longer heard her mother's voice. She said she'd been heard her mother's voice daily ever since she died when she was 13. And somehow, after she wrote To the Lighthouse, um, she said she, she didn't hear her voice anymore. The novel is experimental, and yet it adopts similar techniques to those encountered in Robinson Crusoe. There's a scene where Mrs. Ramsay settles herself, her children retire to bed, where the narrator tells us how often she found herself sitting and looking, this is on the handout, sitting and looking with her work, sorry, it's number seven, with her work in her hands until she became the thing she looked at. That light, for example. And it would lift up on it some little phrase or other which had been lying in her mind like that. Children don't forget, children don't forget. Which she would repeat and begin adding to it. It will end, it will end, she said. It will come, it will come. When suddenly she added, we are in the hands of the Lord. But instantly she was annoyed with herself for saying that. Who'd said it? Not she. She'd been trapped into saying something she did not mean. What brought her to say that? No, the quotation marks in themselves are interesting in this passage because it's unclear, is she speaking this out loud? Is this in her speech? And there's lots of moments like that in Robinson Crusoe too. Inner and outer are always blurred. It seems to be Mrs. Ramsay's inner speech, the train of her thought, as the unwanted voice of patriarchal religiosity unexpectedly pops out. First, unknowingly, and then knowingly disowned, as not herself, as an alien voice. So too, just as external sounds more than sights seem to disturb inner auditory flow, so Mrs Ramsay, like Crusoe with his parrot, in an earlier episode in the novel, is startled into terror, another moment where she's sitting, um, reading, with this flow in the background of men's voices from the neighbouring room, which serve as a kind of unmarked background, mingling with the rhythm of her own flow of inner speech. And we're told that that feels soothing like the crooning of an ancient nursery song. But the voices suddenly stop, this kind of buzz in the background. And then we're told, like a threatening drum roll, Mrs Ramsay suddenly hears the sounds of the waves crashing against the island, and she feels terror. So again, this intrusion um, of a sound from nowhere into this kind of flow of inner, inner, inner dialogue, inner speech. Defoe and Wolfe were survivors, their lives often precarious. Wolfe herself, a voice hearer, knew more than most how the voice that sets up its tenancy within the voice that is recognised as one's own, as Bakhtin puts it, might, as he says, act upon influence and in one way or another determine the author's discourse. Many writers have spoken of how voices seem to arrive with agency, asking to be shaped into characters. But for Wolfe, the internal wrestle for self-possession, the battle with the voices that so often seem to run away with her, relied on a capacity for fiction-making that was undoubtedly and literally, in her case, sometimes an act act of survival. Wolfe recognised just how much the negative capability at the heart of self-recognition, the capacity of the writer to become another, is both a blessing and a curse. But more than this, from these two examples, we can learn more something um, 
um, further important about the experience of hearing voices through the voice in the novel that seems relevant to trying to understand um, the experience of AVHs. Bakhtin referred to the novel's discourse as an agitated dialogism. But his fundamental recognition was that if we think of the word as speech and shaped in dialogue, every word is always directed towards another. It's, an, it's a response or an anticipated response. So the word in speech always brings with it a context. And that's really what Bakhtin was interested in about the novel, that it kind of builds a world and it feels like a world. So although it's written, he thinks that it feels like speech. Vox, or vocare, means to call or invoke, even before speech, voice is an invocation addressed to the other. Think of the um, ways in which caretakers and babies respond to each other. If thinking is dialogic in a speech, what is most internal is always external too. It's always oriented towards a respondent or a dialogic partner. What this disrupts immediately is not only the ideal of the liberal self as a sealed unit that kind of gives itself to itself or is constituted through its brain or its mind in a kind of isolation. It connects itself not only with the possessive individualism of Locke, who of course thinks of the, the self in that kind of way, but also with a philosophical tradition for which the idea of truth is that it is essentially voiceless and disembodied. And we can take this back to Plato, we can take it back to St. Augustine, we can take it back to Aquinas' idea of the voice of God as authentic if it, if it is heard as soundless or a kind of revelation. Voicelessness signifies authority. Hearing an embodied voice is a reversal of the idea of metaphysical truth that subordinates speech and thinking as inner speech to conceptual or abstract or unvoiced thought that is thought of as, as, as pure, as a revelation of the truth. That's why scientific papers have to be unvoiced. And that's one of the major challenges on an interdisciplinary project <laughs> um, is how you write what you do. Um, but think about the often command nature of the disembodied uh, voice experienced by voice hearers and the authority carried simply by its disembodiment. Perhaps dialogue and avatar therapies are successful in that, in transforming the disembodied voice into a character that feels more embodied, they confiscate, mitigate, remove one major source of its commanding presence. But more than this, the disembodied voice whose authority and origins are uncertain is more likely to be experienced not only with a, as a kind of strange authority, but also as uncanny and disorienting, troubling and perspective. The followers of Pythagoras were called the acousmatics. Interestingly, they were not allowed to see the body of the master. Um, so Pythagoras lectured, and the followers were hidden behind a screen. Um, so they simply heard his voice, but they weren't allowed to see his body. Um, rather like the dog on the gramophone, his master's voice. Um, you know, the little dog that sits with you. Um, and that appears also in Ulysses, actually. Um, presumably, 
that not only increased his authority, that the voice was disembodied, but it also conferred the compelling and disturbing aura of the uncanny, the unfamiliar that is familiar but displaced. Think of the unmasking of the Wizard of Oz, a voice behind a screen. As soon as he's unmasked as a body, he loses his authority. The power of the voice of Orwell's big brother, similarly, always emanating from behind a screen. 20th century writers have lots of fun with this, with telephones. Um, in Kafka's The Castle, um, where uh, the voice on the phone, which is the voice of the law that he can't quite ever get behind, is disorienting because he never finds out whose voice it is. It never becomes embodied. Muriel Spark has fun with this in Memento Mori, which is about a group of elderly people who receive anonymous phone calls that, seem, that tell them they're going to die. And it seems that death um, is behind the phone calls. But each of them deals with the voice by turning them into embodiments of its projection of its relation to death. And it's only the spiritual character, Jean Taylor, who understands what's going on and how the voices are calling them, in a sense, um, to find their terms of, um, and their capacity to handle their closeness to death. But the voice terrifies until it's embodied and personified. One of the most vivid scenes in Proust is when Marcel hears his grandmother for the first time on a telephone. She's disturbingly defamiliarised, for he's suddenly aware of her voice as old and cracked. His next visit to her compounds his sense of estrangement as he sees not the beloved and long-cherished image that he's built in his mind's eye, but an old woman, huddled, flushed, vulgar in body, he says. He feels not only possessed, dispossessed of his grandmother, but of his own self too, doubly bereaved, experiencing the power of the lost, internalised ideal object. For in losing you as the person you were for me, I become suddenly inscrutable to myself. In losing you, I have lost part of what I am. That is the experience of grief, of bereavement, of loss. And there's a wonderful phenomenological exploration of grief as voice-hearing and the consolations of finding an embodiment for the voice through the creating of a character called Mr. Tuttle, who begins as, as, a, as a voice of a grieving woman whose husband has committed suicide, in Don DeLillo's The Body Artist. It's a really interesting exploration of it. Like Crusoe, like To the Lighthouse, like A la Recherche de Tom Perdu, this is an exploration of mourning and creativity, the strange but powerful authority of the disembodied voice and its sometimes painful, disturbing, revelatory and also consoling transformation into character. Modernist texts such as Ulysses and Mrs Dalloway deepened understanding of interiority and the processes of inner speech as the mind engages with the world, but interestingly, they further reveal the self as not so much centred and unified, the sort of liberal idea of the self, but dizzyingly distributed. In Mrs Dalloway, everything, including the composite self that emerges out of the connection between Clarissa and Septimus, they kind of doubles, she, she gets this idea from Dostoevsky, is distributed and non-localisable. It becomes impossible to say whether thoughts, sounds, feelings exist within or outside the mind, for even the chimes of Big Ben are carried on the atmosphere as vibrations into the very core of the body. Even the narrative voice takes on the shifting quality of a variegated group, 
picking up echoing, mimicking tones, restless and moving, built out of the minute trails, the skeins, habits, rhythms of custom as they enter the body, echoing the mind, as we're told, the leaden circles dissolving into the air. That's the booming of Big Ben through the text. But also as rumours circulate and produce a kind of choric incantation that reveals a world, again, as so often in Wolf, poised on the edge of terror. Um, the dawn of an age that will marry the crowd with the machine, impose statistically calculated norms and measurements, and construct through scientific calibration the deviant and the normal. So the mad Septimus, frustrated that his message will now never be heard, he's trying to get his message heard, he's, he's come back from the war, um, shell-shocked, um, preserves a fragile, fragile integrity by throwing himself out of the window and committing suicide, which incidentally was how Wolf attempted suicide the first time after her mother's death. Well, modernism, 1910-1930, is the byword for the experimental in fiction. It produced all these great experimental writers like Faulkner, Joyce, um, Wolf, etc., and what followed between 1930 and 1960 is all too often written off as a kind of reactionary interlude. Modernism had done it all. Henry Green said they've licked the, they're like cats who've <laughs> licked the, the plate dry. And there was nothing left to do experimentally. And so that period's often been seen like Defoe's Robinson Crusoe as not really very interesting and not offering very much um, in terms of um, new techniques or new formal, formal investigations in the novel. But again, I mean, this has been interesting for me. Um, it's by thinking about voice and hearing the voice on this project that made me realise, um, again, what's wrong with some of these two long-held literary historical assumptions. In 1926, in an essay on cinema, Virginia Woolf, fascinated by... Um, Venus film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, noticed how the curious metamorphosis of an abstract shape, she describes it as a kind of tadpole that metamorphoses, sorry, whatever, what am I trying to say? Metamorphoses <laughs> into um, and burgeons and kind of grows. Um, produces the effect of a disturbing and complex emotion of terror, she says, in the film without any linguistic articulation at all. And it set her thinking about this. There's a fascinating story written shortly after by Conrad Aiken that's not terribly well known, um, called Silent Slur Snow, Secret Snow, that reproduces this little tadpole, actually. Um, and it's often interpreted as a story about the psychotic breakdown of an 11-year-old child. In fact, Aiken, aged 11, had heard in the distance his father shooting his mother and turning the gun on himself. And he hadn't had a psychotic breakdown. But he goes on later to... It's probably... He's not hugely red writer anymore, but it's a very interesting story. It's a story about snow, where, as the postman's tread in the outside world grows daily dimmer to the young boy in his bedroom, he begins to experience the snow as a kind of felt presence. Snow that seethes silently, gradually spreading and muffling the world, finally seeping into his room 
and settling into a whirling and terrifying shape in the corner that's rather like this, this tadpole from Dr. Caligari. Um, and gradually the voices of the world outside recede entirely. I mean, there is actually no snow outside. He just imagines the snow because he, he starts to hear the postman's footstep every morning growing fainter and fainter. And, and this sound is reproduced in the story. Um, and then he feels himself being taken entirely into this new world, a frozen world that he calls the world of silently seething snow, a kind of voiceless voice that's given to the snow. This might be thought of as the earliest example of what's of late been called slipstream fiction. Um, uh, writers, it's applied to writers like Anna Cavan, whose best-known experimental novel is Ice, uh, who also wrote a series of short stories called Asylum Pieces about her experience of an asylum, or J.G. Ballard's Strange Drowned or Stranded Worlds. We tend to assume that modernism is experimental because being experimental is to explore the mysteries of interiority through investigating processes like inner speech. But the novel <coughs> tradition shows another trajectory of fiction through Smollett, through Dickens, through Kafka, that exaggerates and intensifies the realist mapping of the mind onto landscapes or objects in order to explore unusual and often extreme states of mind that seem to defy verbal articulation. So you could say that as inner speech internalises external dialogue um, and the modernist, high modernist novel like Joyce and Wolfe explore the mind in that way, discovering that the outside is in the inside, this kind of fiction projects the mind onto landscape and, and instead describes these strange landscapes that we realise are kind of these also psychological mindscapes. A renewed interest in Kafka's writing and in early silent and German expressionist cinema was a marked feature, in fact, of the, of the 30s and 40s in the United States and in the United Kingdom. And writers like Henry Green, Edward Upward, Evelyn Moore were all interested in this. Interestingly, Wilhelm Voringer's Abstraction and Empathy, a book written in 1908, was the key aesthetic influence on expressionism and on expressionist film, but it was also an influence on Carl Jaspers, the phenomenologist and psychiatrist, who wrote the first extended um, work on trying to understand psychosis, the general psychopathology, in 1913. It was the first time that anyone had taken seriously the idea that psychotic experience might be meaningful or might be describable. And in it, he formulates the concept of what he called the Wahnstimmung, the delusional mood. Interestingly, Stimmung in German, apart from meaning mood, also contains Stimme, which is voice. So you've got an interesting way in which mood is being seen as expressive, kind of a vocalisation of, of feeling. Jaspers um, looks at um, this, the properties of the delusional mood or atmosphere that is prodromal to psychotic breakdown as one where the world gradually slips stream, becomes unhinged as an uncertain light begins to spread over its surfaces. He used Voringer's term abstraction as a way of trying to imagine how the possibility of reaching understanding of the psychotic world required something more radical than everyday empathy and that perhaps only works of art might reach. 
Writing on Kafka between 1952 and 1954, the Frankfurt theorist Theodore Adorno first tried to explain this kind of abstraction or externalization in, art, in literary art. And this is um, number nine. The space-time continuum of empirical realism is exploded through small acts of sabotage. The self lives solely through transformation into otherness. The more the eye of expressionism is thrown back on itself, the more like the excluded world of things it becomes, an objectivity which expresses itself through its own estrangement. The boundary between what is human and the world of things becomes blurred. Adorno is observing how, in Kafka's writing, think of metamorphosis, and in expressionism more generally, psychic life externalises itself as perception, mood, object, image, action, gesture, talk, landscape, movement. So the centre of self is entirely diffused across environments to be inferred as a complex mindscape rather than through interior exploration of stream of consciousness. In Golding's Pincher Martin, for example, the protagonist externalises an entire world, voices, people, rocks, bodily existence, crowds, out of the phantom concreteness of his own thought. These novels hold out the possibility of trying to imaginatively grasp the pre-reflective way in which mood, often not felt, is cathected as the perceptual reality of a shifted and transformed world. We might not experience our strangeness in ourselves, but we experience the world as strange. They use techniques of objectified or multi-perspectival focalisation, dramatic shifts of scale or sudden shifts of focus from close-up to distant, often borrowed from cinema. Time may be stretched, randomly slow down or speed up. Distinctions blur between memory, perception and inner imagination. Deja vu and jamais vu effects are common. Borders, frontiers, thresholds are common. A recurring tropic opposition is of the enclosed or bubble-like. Domes, vaults, cars, cabins, booths, stations, telephone booths, glass screens that float entangled with but disconnected from the distributed or the net. Networks of talk along telephone lines, typewriters, wirelesses. A disappearing homology between embodiment and voice appears so that multiple voices may occupy one body or voices may be entirely disembodied. These texts produce a powerful sense of disorientation, of the slipping of the real in the reader too, who may also struggle to locate the intended primary ontology of the text or story world, or to infer from the narrative a final level of meaning. One might say that postmodern metafiction also begins here. And um, Muriel Sparks' early work is an example of this kind of fiction. Interestingly, this period also throws up what seemed to me to be the highest concentration of novels. Those um, feature thematically and foreground voice hearing. Um, these novels that draw on these expressionist techniques. And I've put a list of them on the, on the handout. So to conclude, what have we learned by examining fiction? If novels demonstrate in numerous ways, not through um, examining interior voice, but also examining ways in which mood is mapped onto landscape to produce estrangement, to produce the kinds of feelings of alienation that may begin the process of suddenly hearing one's voice as alien. Um, in questioning some of the assumptions of the liberal idea of character, 
the possibility of a more radical empathy arises. If part of me is always the enigmatic trace of others, it may still take an intense kind of disorientation and challenge to my liberal assumptions about who I am for me to realise this and to accept that what I hear as most alien in myself may actually be a voice that is seeking to be integrated into my own. This idea, interestingly, was articulated in mid-20th century, at the same moment in the mid-20th century in the political philosopher Hannah Arendt's writing. Writing on the Eichmann trial in Eichmann in Jerusalem, she said, this inability to speak was closely related to his inability to think, namely to think from the standpoint of someone else. And she goes on to talk about this as a matter of an inadequacy of his capacity to hear the voice, of being and thinking in my own identity where I am not. The more people's standpoints I have present in my mind while I am pondering a given issue, the better I can imagine how I would feel and I would think if I were in their place. The stronger will be my capacity for representational thinking and the more valid my final conclusions, my opinion. So what she's saying, therefore, is that um, listening to the voice, listening to the voice of the other that's in oneself or might be allowed into oneself um, is a vehicle um, is a vehicle for discovering a more honest, um, a more valid kind of uh, what she calls opinion. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying is that in the novel, the way the novel uses voice, as opposed to the way, say, philosophy or science use voicelessness, is its way of, through experiment, um, conducting its epistemological inquiries. Um, and under this notion of, this concept of uh, experiment, therefore, we can bring kind of artistic and scientific ways of thinking together, but also see how they're different. Um, so I'll end there, and I hope I've shown, I've done this rather whirlwind tour of <laughs> the history of the novel, um, because I wanted to show really that, uh, open up this idea of experiment by taking some novels that aren't thought of as experimental and then showing them how they can be conduits for exploration. Um, okay, I'll finish that. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice. <laughs>